It's so very special and rare that any of our intelligence officers from any agency step forward when and where they can and start talking to us in very real terms. Our sit-down today is with one such man, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence, that's the spy stuff, Frank Vigluzzi. I'm honored to have him. Before I play it, you should know, we ran out of time at the end of our discussion. Poor Frank, I couldn't let him go. So take out your pencil now and make a mental note for where to find Frank. His book, The FBI Way, is like a self-help book from an FBI intel chief. It really is. (laughs) It's amazing. And he has a great podcast featuring discussions with active FBI agents titled The Bureau, available wherever you find your shows. Let's begin. So I think just first, if we can hear you explain what counterintelligence is. What is it? And why the FBI has an entire division dedicated to counterintelligence. Sure. So counterintelligence is the work that attempts to detect, defeat, and deter the operations of foreign government agencies operating against U.S. interests. It's spy catching. It's spy detecting. The FBI has been designated as the primary counterintelligence agency of the United States government by executive order. In fact, most FBI counterintelligence agents will be able to actually name the order for you. It's executive order one, two, triple three. And it says the FBI has got this. So that even means that in my role as the head of FBI counterintelligence, um, when I held that position, I oversaw counterintelligence operations writ large throughout the U.S. government because the FBI was that lead. So at a minimum, we needed to have the knowledge that, say, the U.S. Navy was conducting an espionage case against one of their own. And at the best, we okay. would actually be assuming that role. So here's the bottom line. Okay, wait, wait. Every- okay, what the bottom line? But we're going to have to go back to that. You're going to have to explain that to me again, just for, for me. I apologize for my audience, but I want to I want to make sure I just caught what you caught. Let's what you just said. So let's do the the bottom line and then go back to the thing that you just the example you gave about the Navy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So counterintelligence is designed to detect, deter, and defeat the efforts of foreign government intelligence services operating against US interests. It's by catching, it's by identifying, and it's spy neutralizing. Oh, okay. And then you said about the Navy, like just as an example, if we had Office of Naval Intelligence say, and they're catching something, they're picking something up, they know of something, and you're saying where it is domestic, that's where the FBI comes in and assists. No, so the FBI has been designated the the lead counterintelligence agency in the United States government. So that means the FBI needs to have complete visibility into all counterintelligence operations across 
government agencies and across the U.S. intelligence community. So, for example, there are specific memoranda of understanding um, between the FBI and other agencies that ensure that kind of transparency. And it gets down in the weeds. It actually says things like, if you are operating, if you're a military agency and you are operating a case or have suspicions that a civilian employee of your agency, let's say a civilian employee at the Navy, is is or may be committing espionage, guess what? The rules say that the FBI works that case. Now, they'll work it alongside the Navy, certainly, but the FBI will have that case because it's a civilian. But if it's a, it's a uniformed military member, active duty, then the Navy will take the case, the FBI will assist and support. There's that kind of structure around it. The structure didn't exist decades ago when we first figured out as a government who should be working this stuff and where should it sit. So we have to go back all the way to President Roosevelt to figure this out because he was on the cutting edge of this. And we have him to thank for actually having the foresight to do this. Um, And we can talk about the history of where this started. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Let's just jump into that. (laughs) Let's jump right into the history of where it started. Um, Because I get into, uh, in the series, and I think it's the episode that you're going to be following. Right now, we're, you know, we're, we're placing all the interviews with the, with the episodes. But I do get into some, you know, that big Duquesne spy ring in the 1930s. And all, what the largest one, I think it was, ever done by the FBI, or biggest spy ring ever caught in domestically in U.S. Um, and it was leading, it was a German spy ring led by that very strange South African guy. <laughs> um, and it was leading into World War II, where we really realized, we being our government and, and our law enforcement agencies, Oh my gosh, uh, we got spies. <laughs> we got a lot of spies from Germany uh, or German Americans on Germany's behalf operating um, on American soil, g- uh, collecting intelligence on us. And uh, and then I want to get into what kinds of things that these people do because I think everybody thinks of spies as you know the movies. Unfortunately, that people like me write. Uh, this is sort of my penance. <laughs> This series of like, yeah, I put out a lot of fiction, so sorry. Um, but you know, of okay, it's it's someone working inside government that the spies are trying to flip to get the government secrets, and certainly that's a part. But there's other types of activities that foreign intelligence agencies send their people here to conduct on their behalf that go beyond of just, you know, let's get an intelligence briefing that's super secret out of some, right? It goes into actually manipulating human beings, manipulating powerful figures. So I want to get into that too. All right. So history, how did this come about? What happened with Roosevelt? How was it sort of like, okay, we need a counterintelligence division that's actually run by our law, our biggest law enforcement agency? So we do have Roosevelt to thank for having the foresight to realize the need for this and a guy by the name of J. Edgar Hoover who made it happen. And this actually predates the FBI. Before there was a thing called the FBI, there was a thing called the Bureau of Investigation. And there was a 26-year-old kid really named Edgar Hoover who was the assistant director of that 
Bureau of Investigation. And they were starting to get into things like saboteurs. People were, you know, literally blowing up factories and munitions plants um, from foreign countries. Where they were coming over here. They were, they were kind of sleepers. Um, they were recruiting people. And so the, the, this Bureau of Investigation became pretty adept at, at finding those people. And then, and then they create the FBI. It's actually 1935. They put J. Edgar Hoover in charge. And then there's this other mission that gets dropped in Hoover's lap. And he knew nothing about this mission. This mission was actually intelligence. Intelligence. So I think it's really important that we make a distinction between what intelligence is and what counterintelligence is. Many, many, many people confuse these two. Even some within the intelligence community get this wrong. But it's important, it's important to note that if you're going to talk about the history of counterintelligence, particularly with the FBI, you, you got to start with this thing called intelligence. So believe it or not, the FBI was the precursor to the CIA. And lots of people will tell you, oh, no, no, the precursor to the CIA was this thing called the OSS and William Donovan. Well, guess what? Wild the, Bill. <laughs> yeah, Wild Bill Donovan. And yes, yeah. that's that's true. But the first government agents who were tasked with collecting intelligence overseas were FBI agents. And they were sent primarily to Latin America, but also to Europe. And they did so well at recruiting people and collecting intel on foreign governments, militaries, and political secrets that when it was time for a counterintelligence program, um, the Roosevelt set up this thing called the, the Special Intelligence Service, the SIS. Yeah, SIS. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and Frank, this is exciting. At, <laughs> You're at, saying all the things I've studied. Okay, great. All right. So, so at that time, the State Department, think about this, the State yeah. Department, our diplomats had been- yeah. The sole, really, the sole agency collecting intelligence over abroad and to overseas. Now you can think, wait, well, wow, that sounds like a uh, conflict, right? Imagine right now if we were saying, oh, our diplomats have been caught. You know, some guy in charge of trade, you know, negotiations in Egypt um, was caught collecting intelligence. That we, we'd all bang our heads against. Well, that sounds that's bizarre. You can't have a diplomat having the spy mission, but that's the way it worked. They were at yeah. the State Department. So it was Roosevelt who went, mm, maybe not. Maybe we need to split. <laughs> maybe we need to split this up and maybe we give, give it to three parties. The State Department can keep a hand in this because they, they are abroad. And, and yes, you know, the military has a dog in this fight. Let, let's, let's let the Navy do something. But he goes, I, I want the FBI to kind of lead this. I, I, it's Hoover. I, you know, Hoover's proven himself against saboteurs. He's got guys overseas and it was guys. Um, and so let's let's give him this counterintelligence mission. Now, some of your listeners might say, okay, what, what's the difference between intelligence and counterintelligence? And 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 here, you know, at, in a very basic level, it's this. Intelligence means collecting information, um, usable information, right? It, it's it's new, I call it news you can use, right? So if I tell okay. you, Steph, Steph, um, it's raining outside, and you have no yeah. intention, you have no intention of going outside today. That's not news you can use. But if you have intention of going outside today, now you're saying, I, I need to bring an umbrella, maybe a raincoat, 
that's news you can use. That's intelligence. I've collected it because I looked outside and saw it was raining and I've disseminated it to you. That's intelligence. But counterintelligence is very different. Counterintelligence is trying to make life miserable for those guys and gals who are looking out the window to see if it if it's raining, right? So counterintelligence, right. counterintelligence is is closing the blinds so you can't see it. Counterintelligence is making it look like it's sunny. Maybe we're putting a piece of artwork in front of your window when it's really raining, right? We're trying to screw that intelligence collection up. We're countering your efforts to collect intelligence. I love it. I, I, that's a, I think that's a perfect. It, it, it's much more active in that description, I think, for people in their minds to think of, okay, the agents aren't just sitting back and collecting. They're not just sitting back and trying to catch. They're actually actively thwarting these efforts um, by our enemies. They are, they, they don't wish us well. <laughs> and so the more we can sort of mess up their, mess up their plans and mess up their agenda and mess, mess up even their daily activities, the better. Okay. I, I love people, that. That's people, so great. Need, people need to understand there are, there are people who get up out of bed every single day who try to make uh, the U S um, fail. And, and those are yeah. foreign, those are foreign intelligence officers. Yeah. Oh my. Okay. So in counterintelligence, I think where it gets stuff all gets kind of collapsed and it's confusing for people. And what I'm trying to do is just really separate and have these big pieces that we can absorb and learn from. What about then the prosecution activities of counterintelligence. Does that division of the FBI then bring these bad actors to justice or where there are Americans collaborating with these bad actors and making, you know, you put the window, you put the picture over the window and then, an, you know, an American figures out you've done that and comes and takes it away so that the spy can keep going. So, uh, that might not be a spy themselves, but it's somebody that's collaborating. So where, and that's, I'm sure that's the wrong word to use for law enforcement, but where, where does it turn into for you? And did it turn into for your division? Okay, now we've got some people we've caught and we, there are some laws that were broken and your involvement then in counter, as counterintelligence division was what? Because that's what we think of when we think of the FBI. We think these are the these are our law enforcement. This is our law enforcement agency that brings people to justice. So where does counterintelligence and justice intersect? What's so that process? I, yeah, I, lo I love this question because it again it's it's kind of blurred in many people's minds. <clears throat> the FBI actually has um, three three missions. Um, and it's criminal, it's intelligence collection. People, people really don't know that, that there's an intelligence directorate in the FBI. And it's counterintelligence. Now there's a huge counterterrorism mission, but that straddles, that straddles the counterintel and criminal world. Um, so let's talk about the distinctions. I'll say this, the goal of a criminal investigation is to put some, generally is to put somebody in handcuffs and get them convicted. That not only is not the goal 
of counterintelligence work. But in many, many instances, it, if that's where you're headed, you're put, you've put handcuffs on somebody, it's largely an indication that you have failed. It's not only is it not the goal, but it's a signal that you screwed up. And, and here's, here's, here's why I say that. By the time someone has actually committed a statutory violation like espionage, which is generally what we're talking about when, when counterintelligence uh, agents handcuff somebody, the damage is done, right? Something secret's been taken. Some companies lost its trade secrets. Um, the bad guys, usually a foreign power, now have something they should never have had. And you failed to get it ahead of time. Um, you've caught them in the act or afterwards, usually, and you're cleaning up the wreckage. And part of that is handcuffs. Now, there are times when you get it right and it's a, you decide that this is going to be a sting operation. This is the, this is the only way left to neutralize somebody. And you're going you're gonna to make them do this thing that they were about to do for real, but you're now going to do it. They're going to do it with you. And, and you're going to handcuff them. Again, I say not optimal because that's a last ditch effort. Um, here's the goal. You, you might say, well, if it's not handcuffs and prosecution, what, what's the goal of counterintelligence? And I'm right back to what we call the three D's, detect, deter, defeat. So defeating in counterintelligence terms means that you've done so well at identifying the entire operation of a foreign government, all the members of its cell, its leadership, command and control element, that you not only have identified it, but now you're owning it. And the example I'll give here is the 10-year operation against Russian illegals by, by the FBI, sleeper mm -hmm. agents who were inserted in the United States. And what years? Oh, gosh, um, you're, we're talking um, uh, 2000 forward for about okay. for 10 years, at, at least. Yep. Um, and the operation was so successful that the FBI actually owned their covert communications. The <laughs> FBI actually communicated with some of them as if they were their handlers in Moscow. Um, the, oh, FBI wow. put, you know, the FBI put an undercover agent against Anna Chapman in a Starbucks in New York, and she bought hook, line, and sinker that he was her new handler. And she, ha <laughs> and she handed part of it. <laughs> yeah, she handed him her covert com laptop. And so, you know, to, hey, can you fix my laptop? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me yeah. Let me take that and work let me on take that for it. You. Yeah. So. You know, the goal is wrap them up, own them, and then if you're lucky enough, start passing them something we call passage material, which might contain something we call disinformation. Disinformation could cause an entire foreign adversary to go off on a tangent that's going to, you know, here, here's, uh, here's some research, right, that, it, that will tell you how to how to build lighter, faster jet fighters. But we know we spent years on this research and it got, and it was absolutely wrong. But we, you know, it took us 10 years to figure out this research is bad. Give it to them in passage material. Let them play with it for 10 years and screw themselves up. 
that's the kind of thing. And in wartime, and I've, I've had the privilege, without going into any detail, I have had the privilege as a counterintelligence agent of working a double agent operation during, oh, wow. war, during wartime where disinformation was passed to the enemy. And the enemy bought it. And the enemy, wow. the enemy was getting the same disinformation from a number of its of, of people they thought were their assets, right? But it was really a concerted, <laughs> a concerted U.S. intelligence operation, counterintelligence operation, to mess with their heads and get them militarily to do things that would cause them to lose the war. So um, that's that's a call to success story. It's not handcuffs. It's not prosecution. Wow. Okay, and oh, I, oh, I would be, oh, oh yeah. I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the ultimate success, the ultimate goal, the career maker, recruitment in place, a, what we call a rip. So if you're able to recruit an actual foreign intelligence officer, a member, you know, if it's Russia, a member of the SVR or a member of the GRU, or a member of the FSB, and they actually play for Team America, and they stay in place, right? Because you say, oh, it must be a yeah. defection. that you're, you, you want a defection, right? Defections are nice, but even better is the RIP, the recruitment in place. You're going to work in place for us back home or in your assignment overseas, and you're going to let us know everything your government is doing. I love it so much. Okay. I, it's like the ultimate cat and mouse, except you play the cheese and then you turn the mouse into a cat. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Once they, yeah. once they gobble up your cheese, it's a magical power. It turns them into a cat. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. So how much do our enemies, let's say the folks behind the Anna Chapman, you know, that ring, uh, how much do they know about how we operate? And I don't mean this in terms of sources and methods, uh, because everyone kind of gets that, okay, we have secret ways that we do things, and they have secret ways that they do things, and we never want to disclose any of that. But just in terms of the psychology the meth methodology, the 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 understanding of of who we are and how we protect ourselves against them. 
I, th- I find this to be a big hole in people's understanding, especially as I focus, as I focus on organized crime, I think because there's so much pop material out there uh, about who, who people think gangsters are, mobsters are, that um, there's just a, the, the real information about who these folks are and were and how they operated it almost sort of washes over people's consciousness and in a way that they can't take in, that they don't know. And I find this same thing happens when it comes to, okay, we do have nations that are seeking to dismantle us literally right now. <laughs> they really want to, America, they're done with America's, you know, standing in the world. They're done with democracy. We're the biggest target there is. And they've been landing some pretty solid punches. And I find that Americans, we don't understand that our enemies understand us and that they can use their knowledge of us against us. And I know this is sort of a big, broad, goopy question and not something that's very specific for you to answer, but just if you could kind of, if, if in your experience, how, well versed are they in who we are as opposed to how well versed we are in them. Yeah. They have an advantage. The advantage is that we are free and open society. And so that means it's far easier for them to study and learn us than it is for us to study and learn them. They uh, recently have proven that they have our number. And by that, I mean, yeah. we, we need only look at the social media propaganda campaign that they launched for the 2016 election. It's well-documented in both the, the Mueller special counsel report and in the uh, Senate intelligence committee report. Volume five. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, about a dozen Russians were indicted uh, for the social media side of that. And then of course, a dozen more GRU officers indicted for, for the hack I say they understand us lately and have our number because because they've been so successful in uh, inserting propaganda into our social media feeds. They understand our mindset. Um, they can, you know, this is a true story, and it's 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 in the uh, it's in the Mueller report referred to at least. They can do something like this. Um, yep, they're racists over there, and they're itching for a fight. So we're going to put out uh, something on social media saying there's going to be a black. Uh, Lives Matter rally in downtown Houston on this street on Tuesday at 3 p.m. And then we can put on and we can we can feature it on all of the kind of feeds that uh, BLM folks might be interested in. But we're also going to say that there's a uh, there's a white supremacy rally on Tuesday at 3 p.m. in downtown Houston on the same street. And we're going to end up with whites and blacks fighting each other in downtown Houston. They can do that. They understand us. They did do it. Yeah, they did do it, and so um, they can they can shape the way we think about the COVID vaccine. They're doing that right now um, yeah. in our feeds. At one point, uh, a couple of years ago, about a quarter a million of us were following fake Facebook accounts put out by the Russian intelligence service. So why do I say it's more recent that they figured us out? Because for many many years, mostly during during my tenure and prior, um, they got fed a line at their at the KGB school at the academies over <laughs> there about us which is that we we're dirty we play dirty we're corrupt 
um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so they come over here when they get posted here. Um, it became fairly easy to recruit them. Why? They went to the supermarket and saw uh, 27 different types of breakfast cereal to choose from. Yeah. They, saw, they saw blacks working in great jobs. They saw people with shiny cars and big homes and kids and the playground. And they, everything they were taught, and they started reading history books. Most of them would head for the library and start reading history for the first time accurately. And when, when an FBI agent first would approach them to develop a relationship, they'd go, everything I was told was a lie. Wow. And, and I come from a corrupt system, they would say. I'm never getting promoted because Igor is a friend of Vlad and, and he's going to get the promotion. It was easy to recruit them. And you know what I worry about today? That, that, that it's harder because they look at us now and go, you're a mess. Uh. America is a mess fighting with each other. You've got Trump who's been duped. We've duped 40% of Americans. Um, And and why would I want to play on your team? That's what I worry about today. That's a big worry. (laughs) It's a big worry Um, because we have to, that tip of the spear needs to be as sharp and clean and accurate as possible to protect us. And if we can, uh, if we're turning into the propaganda that they are feeding over there I- inside their schools and that, you know, and you know, it's not, it, we're, we are open, you know, it's, it's easy for folks over there to not come over here and just look at what's going on on their phones or whatnot um, and get, and, and, find whatever evidence they need to find to back up whatever reality is being fed to them. We have that here. We have a problem with these sort of reality bubbles uh, of information that can just be filled in uh, with a bunch of lies and disinformation, which you were bringing up on the other side. But certainly those folks from the Kremlin, whether they're from the SVR, wherever they're from, they know how to flood the zone over in here in our information spheres with all of the information that works for them. Um, and I think that this is where, for me, and looking at this whole thing and looking at 100 years of history, it's it's really these platforms and these devices <laughs> that we all have in our pockets that is just changing things in a way that I think is too fast for our minds to catch up with and these like for instance you gave those two examples of uh, that was out of the Mueller report of you know fake rallies that are generated from a foreign intelligence services of getting people to move into in real life right off of their computers go to an in real life rally and we're going to set you against one another and and for the people showing up, their experience is incredibly real. Who they heard about that from was one of their friends on Facebook. They, they're, it's impossible to even penetrate their minds to say, no, you're a mark and you got played. They, they are having a whole real life experience that was generated out of some lab for them <laughs> to, to, you know, somebody thought, t- thought 
thought that up, right? And some officer at some point or some low-level guy said, why don't we do this? And boom, pumped it into Facebook. And they're having, a, Americans are having a real life experience. It becomes almost impossible to try to educate and convince them that they have just been puppeted into somebody else's chessboard, right? It becomes, it becomes uh, self-confirming when your friend, your right. aunt, your uncle is now saying the same thing, um, not realizing they're regurgitating Russian or Chinese social media propaganda. Right. But, you know, something really interesting has just recently happened, which is, I, you know, they've kind of jumped the shark, to use a Hollywood term. They've gone from making it hard to detect that there's this is Russian propaganda. This thing's coming from the Russian intel services. And now it's starting to come out in the open. And what I mean by that is um, the, the a, a Russian government official, I think it was their Minister of Foreign Affairs, just recently came out in anticipation of the Biden summit with the, the Biden meeting with Putin later in, in June and said, you know, one of the things we're going to be bringing up with Biden is this persecution of those people at the Capitol on January 6th. You know, they're, they're being. Oh, persecuted. yeah. Yeah. That was a big right? shark jump. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, so look what's happened here, right? Look what, look what's happened is, is now <laughs> the, you know, the QAnon folks and the, the Trumpsters now are finding themselves backed by overt statements from the Russian government that, you know, we've got your back. And and what they don't realize is, no, the, the Russians made you, right? They, they're feeding you a line. You acted on it. And now overtly they're going, yep, these people are being persecuted. Yeah, they're being persecuted for what you made them do. Yeah. It, it, I, I think that January 6th is, it's one of those Rubicon moments that we still, we're not far enough away from it to really measure it uh, in terms of what's coming out of all that. And I want to end with talking to you about that because the other point of doing these interviews is to bring all this history and all this knowledge into the current moment. So we have a context for the current moment that we're in. And that January, we just so that the audience knows, Frank and I are doing this on June 2nd. Um, and the the Senate just last week killed, I think it was Friday even. It feels like a lifetime ago. It's been a few days, but it's only been a few days. Right before the, for the holiday weekend, Memorial Day weekend, they killed the Senate investigation um, or the bipartisan investigation from the Hill of investigating um, January 6th. So it's going to move. It's now, it's always been at the Department of Justice anyway. That I think we can all understand is going to continue. And I want to get your thoughts on that because I've been paying very close attention to you, Frank. This is why I hound you. Talk about hounding over the devices. I hound Frank, everybody in DMs going, please come talk to me because I'm watching what you're saying on, uh, on the, on the cable news, right? For that gets into a lot of people's homes and the clarity that you have in your language around January 6th, around what this moment that we're in and what we're facing has just been extraordinary. And I, uh, and I know you have a, Frank also has a great podcast he's launched um, called The Bureau and we're gonna make sure everybody knows about that. But I really, really want folks to listen to what you've been saying about January 6th. So I want to end on that. I have a question I got to insert in here that feels like a little, we're going to go in a little cul-de-sac for a second, but but it's not, it's connected. So here we are, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about the Kremlin. That's been a big foe. Of course, China's in there as well. The folks that are president now, President Biden, has been very forthright and saying to everyone, 
They want to end democracy, folks. We're kind of under this assault and we have to take a stand for democracy and we have to make sure that we continue to exist and that the free world can continue to pursue democracy as well. Um, in the history, especially as we got into the 80s and the 90s, um, with the foe that is the Kremlin, right? Coming out of that Cold War we were in, and then eventually the fall of the Soviet Union to where it's called Russia again. Um, the, the intelligence services, it doesn't seem that they did much different. <laughs> they just sort of kept rolling along. They renamed themselves. They created different divisions. I know that there was some kind of a secret thing we negotiated with them because no one wanted the KGB anymore. They had to end or they, or they couldn't reform. So all this other stuff going on around that. Uh, the fall of Soviet Union, but it's, they had a tool, they had a particular toolbox that they drew from, um, and it were individuals in organized crime that they sent over here, um, starting in the 70s and in the 80s, and um, they, these Russian mafiosos connected really well <laughs> with our organized crime families, um, they had a lot to offer. There's that um, Red Daisy uh, operation that went down where they had the big gas cam that was a billion dollars. They were pulling in a billion dollars a year, um, the Russian mafia, because they had an intelligence service behind them. Our gangsters did not have an intelligence service behind them the way that the Russian mafia had. So I'm in that intersection for uh, Russian organized crime, between Russian organized crime, between their gangsters and their intelligence services. In counterintelligence, our counterintelligence activity, I don't know, did you see any of that still going on? Was there, what was the bureaus? I've read the public information about the bureau from writers like Robert Friedman and Red Mafia and some of these other uh, books. But I just wondered if there's anything you could share with us about, did the Bureau learn big stuff with that? That all of a sudden the gangsters, which would normally be over in the criminal division, had an intelligence service behind them, had at the time of the Soviet Union in those early 80s, had the KGB behind them specifically. So, so first, I'll say this, toward the end of my career, it became almost impossible to discern the difference between Russian organized crime and Russian intelligence. I say that because um, so many former Russian intelligence officers um, chose to retire and start working with Russian organized crime. And it was a seamless retirement job for them because they had been exposed to it early in their career. The, the marriage, um, when you understand the Russian intelligence service, the marriage between Russian organized crime and Russian intelligence agencies it, it becomes very, very clear and, and obvious and, and, and is a no brainer. You, you, as an intelligence service, you want number one, to be able to penetrate uh, any way you can, others targeted societies, okay? Got it. Organized crime was very adept at that. Um, you know, people want um, contraband. They want they want drugs or yeah. tobacco or women or whatever it is is the uh, the contraband of the day, and so that permeates 
the globe and if and organized crime can do that better than some intelligence services can so the russians yeah. identify that yeah, <laughs> the, the russian intelligence services they're really good at that. it the other the other thing yeah. is you always want to, you you'd like as an intelligence operative you want to operate with people that you can leverage so who is that well people who are doing criminal things because back home you have the power or even in the United States, you can drop a dime, right? You want to drop a hammer on somebody back home because they're organized crime? You can do it in a second in, in Moscow. You can certainly drop a dime on them and call the police in the United States. So you own them, so to speak. You leverage them and you use and exploit their capability in the world of uh, the underground economy and contraband. I have to tell you, though, I begin to wonder um, whether or not that's flipped. And whether or not, in some ways, Russian organized crime now owns Russian. Oh, I think they do. Yeah. No, I yeah. think it's they took over. Uh, yeah. You know, you had yeah. Alexander Litvinenko. For those of you that don't know, this isn't part of my scripted episode, so I'll fill people in real quick. So there was an FSB officer who was, uh, I think he was the deputy uh, uh, right underneath the head of their organized crime division, FSB being one of the agencies that evolved out of the KGB when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, some people relate the FSB to what the FSB is to Russia to what the FBI is to America. It's a, it's not a perfect fit, but that's okay. It has an F in front of it. So if that helps people. It's, it's their domestic service. It's a domestic service. And so there's a gentleman, uh, there was an officer named uh, Alexander Litvinenko, who was second in charge of the organized crime division within, which is mobsters within the FSB. And he realized uh uh, and people don't get this either, but Putin served a little stint there as head of the FSB right before he um, he ran for his first term of president in 99-2000 uh, for the 2000 elections over there. So um, Litvinenko was given a kill order to actually go and kill uh, by his superior, by the head of the organized crime division, to go and kill an oligarch at the time uh, that was one of the first eight, they were called the eight snow, it was like, did they call them the Snow White and the Eight Dwarfs? I don't remember, but there was eight oligarchs at, at the fall of the Soviet Union that really rose um, to own the majority of the, con they were sort of the biggest businessmen there. Um, and so Litvinenko, when all this power was getting consolidated with the organized crime families, um, Litvinenko had been given an order by the head of his division of FSB to assassinate an oligarch. And instead of doing that, he went to Beresovsky. I always say his name wrong. Sorry, buddy. And he said to him, I've been given a kill order to kill you by my boss. You need to run. <laughs> run away. And at first, the oligarch didn't believe him. Then he did. He, flee, he fled. He eventually uh, went to Great Britain, went to England. And Litvinenko knew, okay, I got to now expose this. And he did a press conference. And this is, everyone can find this. He did a press conference to the world. He was unmasked. His fellow FSB officers who understood what they were up against, they wore masks because they didn't want to identify themselves. They were so terrified for their lives and lives of their family. And they sat in front of the press and they said very clearly, Russia is a mafia state. The mafia has taken over the FSB. They have taken over our intelligence services. 
that was the moment. And I think that the world is finally just catching up with that moment of understanding that you to really understand the way that enemy works, you have to stand in the world of organized crime first. You have to stand in the money. This was a this this was all about massing vast sums of money um, by Putin and his and his henchmen who are all backed by organized crime over there. Um, and it's all blood money. This is not clean money. It's either being stolen from the people or it's from whatever syndicates and whatever kinds of things that they're running. So the gangsters that they used in the 70s and 80s and 90s evolved into, the intelligence agencies used, evolved as Russia then became a mafia state, evolved into really full-blown intelligence officers, as far as I can tell. Um, and, uh, you know, and there's still a lot of thugs, but they just, you don't want to give the spy tools of a, of a formidable agency like that to a bunch of gangsters. Well, let me, <laughs> let, me give you, let me, let me give you a, a very real time example that has most, uh, us intelligence analysts kind of scratching their head at this point. The example being hacking, hacking yeah. and, and ransomware. So we've been crippled. We've seen the uh, colonial pipeline uh, cripple us uh, in terms of fuel supply for a while. We're going now through this, uh, this beef and meat supply with this large uh, uh, meat supplier uh, being hacked. And, and of course, solar winds. The ability to figure out um, who's doing this is getting harder and harder and harder. Now, you, certainly mm. there's attribu attribution to Russia. Yes, yes, yes. But the ability to say now, okay, well, this is this is uh, the the SVR versus the GRU. Here's here's what's happening, and and with regard to the ransomware cases, you know, it's, this is a bleed into what they're having trouble discerning is whether we're dealing with Russian organized crime or Russian intel or both, because for plausible deniability purposes, Vladimir seems to be utilizing increasingly the criminal element to do yeah. this. Yeah, that's and right. And so, and by, and by the way, by the way, the Chinese caught on to this, you know, Russia often file, fo follows China and some of these intelligence techniques. You know, when we indicted, when the U.S. government indicted five People's Liberation Army, Chinese army uh, guys for hacking, China went, maybe, uh, maybe we should be using civilians for hacking. So Russia's like, <laughs> oh, maybe that's a good idea. Oh, we've got this organized crime yeah. connection. But organized yeah. crime, you know, you mentioned you mentioned money. They want they want ransom. So they, they're like, yeah, we'll hack. Right. We'll, ha we'll hack, but we're going to ask for money to give them their stuff back, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If, yeah. if there's no money in it, forget it. That, right. <laughs> yeah. So th this is the new this this is becoming the new normal in hacking. And so you know, yeah. when Biden sits across from from Putin, you have to. Uh, one of the first questions my my active duty folks tell me that Biden should ask is. Hey, uh, Vlad, are you sure you're in charge of your intelligence services? Are you sure? Oh, that's an ego blow. That's yeah. a good one. Oh, oh yeah. Because, you know, sometimes when Putin goes, uh, I don't think, I don't think we did that. He might be picking up the phone and calling, you know, Oleg going, who, who the hell did this? And so there's a, th <laughs> there's a theory, there's a theory. It's only a theory. Uh, and it's a minority theory that, that organized crime has married up with 
uh, certain people in the Russian intelligence services, and they want Putin out. And if and if yeah. getting Putin and if getting Putin out means embarrassing him and making him unstable with the rest of the world because they keep hacking <laughs> into everybody's business, right? And yeah. he looks and he looks like a doofus, right? Then they'll do it. So stay tuned on this this now indecipherable well, marriage. It's an indecipherable marriage. I call it the mongoose and the snake. <laughs> and you know, Putin's a snake, but the mongoose always wins. I'm sorry, everybody. The mongoose, even for this guy, he was a puppet. He was installed by them. I, 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 this is if I'm in the minority of that, I'm in the minority of that. He gained a lot of power. Um, he certainly became a mob boss in his own right. But they're done with him. They, you can, we're sanctioning their money. We need to keep sanctioning their money. You just never fuck with the mob's money. That mongoose is going to eat that snake. Okay, now we have this one little thing that I said we're going to do, which we haven't done. And I want to make sure we get this in because I, I really want the audience to hear this, that I think they now understand counterintelligence versus intelligence. I think they understand counterintelligence versus criminal division within the FBI. I, I feel like we've landed those big, those big planes, which is great. Let's land the plane of is it only about getting the microfiche and film out of some defense, you know, Department of Defense industry? Thing? Is that what spies do or do they do other things, especially with the context of everything we just discussed in terms of the need for our enemy? Let's focus on Russia because it's easy um, as an example and China the same to take over our discourse right, to hijack our discourse, hijack what our news is, hijack what maybe academic studies might be coming out, proving something about Arctic melting, if you have an agenda there with oil and gas, what, you know, what else could possibly these foreign operations be, these foreign spy operations be, what other targets and agendas might they have other than just trying to get you know, the microfiche, <laughs> which doesn't yeah. exist anyway. So, right, right. And right. When you say that, you, we're all, we're aging ourselves because, yeah, uh, yeah. No, because yeah. there's yeah, microfiche. I know. We're but, old, Frank. It's right. okay. But here's, here's the deal. Um, it's everything. Everything is up for grabs. Everything can be stolen and everything is stolen. And, you know, the I, I have to laugh when I use the phrase, the, the fall, you know, the Cold War, the end of the Cold War. It, you mentioned it earlier. It, it never ended. The number of no. intel foreign intelligence services officers inside the United States never really changed. I feel like that was a disinformation op that they successfully right, pulled right, off right. on well, us. Of course, like yes. They made us think oh. we're your friends now. Oh, yeah. Let's no, be they, capitalists. They, I've seen, <laughs> I have seen SVR officers posted to the United States tell Americans that they're trying to recruit. You know, we don't spy on you anymore, right? You know that. Yeah. That's over. Yeah. <laughs> so, so look, um, economic espionage is where it's out where it's at you know um james carville who was a campaign director for bill clinton he put up on the wall of campaign headquarters in little rock during the clinton presidential campaign it's the economy stupid right he put up a sign it's the yeah. remind everybody to be on message it's the economy stupid it is the economy stupid when it comes to intelligence collection so everyone in the world we, we discovered this after the so-called end of the Cold War, when, when the FBI had time to look around and go, 
okay, wait a minute now. What, what did we, we kind of won this thing militarily. What, what now? And we realized, oh my God, almost everybody except a handful of allies is stealing our economic secrets, our corporate <laughs> trade secrets, right? Yeah. We, had, we, finally, we finally had the time to look around and go, oh my God, uh, you know, there are U.S. companies being ripped off blind yeah. by, yeah. So um, economic secrets, trade secrets, um, politics is huge, particularly for the Chinese. They, the Chinese services will plant somebody in a mayor's office in some yeah. dunk place because they think that mayor someday might be a governor and someday might be a senator and someday might be president. They're in it for the long haul. They will penetrate. They penetrate companies. They penetrate campuses, particularly among graduate students. Uh, all This is all nations, by the way, do this because yeah. they get their hands. What do they get at a at, at grad student uh, level? They get that pre-classified research that's going on where the university might not even understand the dual use of that niche research they're working on in some laboratory on campus, right? But the Chinese do, the Russians do. They, yeah. they ha- they've got a grad student working on that, walking out the door with it. So everything's about, on the table. How about celebrities and businessmen and, and uh, finance yeah, well, we we saw during the, the the I referred earlier to the ten Russian illegals, the case that was yeah. worked by the FBI for ten years, notorious uh, Anna Chapman, the beautiful redhead that was part of that cell. They were they were into the financial circles as well. They absolutely, yeah. a couple of them were absolutely tasked with penetrating uh, Wall Street investment, get the latest strategies. Ab- absolutely. Um, and how do they do that, Frank? Do they do that because they hack into a system or do they do that through people? So that we'll never, I think we'll never see the total end of human, the human side of spying. There's nothing like, I don't, I, yes, there's hacking is incredibly beneficial and yes, it's much safer than risking a, a, an intelligence operative getting caught. But I have to tell you, we'll, we'll, there's no substitute for a human source, none. That, you know, that microphone you put in a foreign prime minister's office, that can get discovered. But that admin, that deputy in that service, who's in that office every day, who the the, the leader you're targeting is confiding in, can't be beat. So they get next to people. They start slow. They go to the cocktail party. They go to the embassy function. They go to the trade conference. They, they go to a symposium, an academic symposium, and they pass business cards around. It is just complete saturation. And I have to tell you, in the D.C. area, when half the time when you're going to one of these symposiums um, or lectures, you don't know whether it's been set up by the CIA, or it's <laughs> been set up by, you know, half the people in the room are intelligence collectors from some other country passing business cards to other intelligence collectors. It's complete saturation and everything's on the table. Everything's on the table. I love that because that feels very much worker bee, right? Like it's just, it's a worker bees, worker bees, worker bees, constantly, constantly going. Um, bringing what they've got to bring back to the hive, right? <laughs> to just grow that. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, it's, so it would be a, a mistake. Real... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I'm just saying it would be a mistake on the worker bee concept. 
Yeah, that gives you the num the idea of the magnitude of the numbers, right? Because people people frequently, I would get this question on the Hill all the time uh, when I would do classified briefings. Frank, how many uh, Russian intelligence officers are right now in the United States? How many? And I, you know, I'd have to tell them, right? And I, of course, <laughs> if they're going to leak it or not. But it's so much. Right? What they're talking about is, oh, who's operating under diplomatic cover? You know, at the yeah. embassy in Washington or the UN or, or the consulate in San Francisco, and how how many of those guys are actually spies. Okay. We got, we, we pretty much know that number. That's not, that, that, that was the least of my worries. My worries were the ones who weren't under diplomatic cover, right? We don't know where they are. They're on yeah. the campus. They, they, they're, they've been hired by Google or Microsoft or somebody else. That's the problem is not knowing yeah. where those worker bees are. Yeah. What about the Queens? What about, especially, I, I think for me, you know, I because of the world that I'm in and, and where my work traditionally always was, was just, you know, going into studios and meeting with executives and, um, you know, knowing producers, big producers, and uh, working with other artists. I find that that world is a rich, rich target uh, base because we're writing the movies and we're, or we're going on the TV shows and we're doing all this. Um, and yet are completely dumb. They just are, they're just dumb. My colleagues are dumb. I don't know what to say. They're dumb about this world. Um, unless they start writing about it. And then there's sort of a, a distance that they have of not, okay, so, but then you just went to the yacht party, <laughs> the restaurant yacht with the guy, maybe, you know, there were some cameras all in there. Maybe, you know, maybe don't do that line of coke off of that strange girl's body. I, I think it's, I don't, I'm not trying to be too harsh here, but that's that world I find to be the easiest, richest target that there is. And there's so much money just being pumped in there. And a lot of it, there was an era in the 90s where a ton of money was coming in. Uh, from some Russian oligarchs, right? From from some of these folks that now we look back and say, oh, they're connected to Putin. <laughs> oh, no. And the Kremlin. I don't think anybody knew at the time. I re They really did not. They really didn't. But it was astounding to me how rich of a target, what a rich target area that was. And everyone was clueless, just clueless. Well, we've talked about a great deal about the battle for the American minds as it pertains to social media, right, and propaganda. But you you don't get much better at at influencing Americans than a, a Hollywood blockbuster movie that's seen right. mil millions of people. They're streaming it into their living rooms, lining up at cinemas to see it. That's that's how you influence Americans, and so. The concept of due diligence, I think, has been completely foreign to uh, the Hollywood uh, movie and television industry. Yeah, you know, you know, most savvy companies now um, in the corporate world now they they do extensive due diligence. Who's who is investing in us? Who you know who who know your customer? There's entire departments at industrial firms that do this, right? I don't see anybody doing that kind of due diligence in Hollywood, saying no. Nope. Uh, we're is this Ukrainian money or Russian money? How come this <laughs> how come this oligarch wants to invest in this movie? What what's this about? And yeah. you know, if you want to you want a very kind of ugly, brutish example of how you know uh, foreign nations pay attention to Hollywood. 
look, look what um, um, North Korea did to Sony Pictures um, yeah. when, when they didn't like a movie that portrayed the dear leader in a, in a, in a you know, unenviable fashion, right? They, they, they want to control the American mind. And if they can do it through investment, influence, compromise in Hollywood, um, they'll do it. And, and one of the things I would just say is it's time for, for a lot more due diligence about where the money's It is. I would like some Foreign Corrupt Practices Act <laughs> sort of eyeballs opening up uh, around around my town. I think that would help everyone immensely because nobody wants to be in the position where you end up being compromised or owned by these people. These are not the people you want in your business or in your lives um, simply because they had a nice yacht and you stumbled onto it uh, and because you thought it wasn't going to be a fun party. Um, so I, I, that, I think it would, I think it would benefit everyone if we all started looking at things a little bit, just open our blinders up a little bit and sort of see, okay, <laughs> people, are, and, and also to know that spies are really charming. They're like super charming. They're trained to be really charming. As you said, they know how to get right up next to you. Even if it's just the student, they know how to get in there. Imagine someone who's working with intelligence that's got a couple billion dollars behind them. How charming that person is going to be. Um, you're gonna, they're going to say, here are my kids at this call. Oh, let me help you get your kids. And so that, this is, I've seen it in the social circles. I've seen how it all works. And it's, um, you know, it, it just, I just would like everyone's minds to open up, not become paranoid, but just kind of understand, you know, maybe we need some more sort of guardrails in our business practices. And that will help us moving forward to have, you know, to not have something like a movie get seized. <laughs> by the FBI because it turned out there's a bunch of, of 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 money going in there that should never have got in there. I don't know. These are the things I think about. Uh, I, I'm not sure about my town. I, I'm I'm hoping I'm holding out. I'm holding out hope for them, Frank. I'm holding out hope. Huh. <laughs> um, okay, so let's come back around to to January 6th and how you've been articulating that present moment. I would love to just hear again, as someone who is head of FBI counterintelligence for coming out of that world, what did you see on that day? What did that, what was the impression it was giving you, both from your work and your expertise, but also as an American like all the rest of us? And what do you hope for that we sort of the Department of Justice gets right about this as they move forward with all these investigations. And what um, what is maybe some of the, this, I, I think everybody's waiting for some kind of thing to hold on to of like, is this a, when do we get the goalpost coming down? And when, if we don't see a certain goalpost coming down in terms of justice, in terms of of how this is all rolling with the investigations into January 6th. If we're not seeing th certain things happen, when should we get more concerned? I'm trying to keep everybody's hair from going on fire. I'm trying to like get icy with this whole thing while at the same time stay very present to this threat. I, I think it's a huge threat. Okay, so I'm gonna answer a question. Sorry, uh, that was big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Big. so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say uh, 
something really short, which is get concerned now. Get okay. concerned now. Um, I've been restrained uh, on this for a while because I don't think it. I don't think it helps me message correctly to become the guy with his hair on fire. Um, but I'm starting to get there, and okay, and starting to get there because. Um, and I want, it's really important for me, for people to understand that I don't have a dog in this political fight. I, this isn't politics for me. I am about as apolitical as you can be. 25 years in the FBI, there were, there were years I chose not to vote because I had, my office had people under investigation in, in a given place that I lived, or, you know, where I ran FBI offices. Um, I didn't want a county commissioner looking up to see how I vote, although he did anyway. Um, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't care. I, I care a lot about democracy and I am now seeing this as much bigger. What happened on January 6th is, is not a political difference. It's not about whether we were going to have a Republican party or not. You know, I've heard pundits keep, oh my God, we've lost the Republican party. Okay. We, no, it's bigger than that. It's bigger uh. than that. And, and the fact that we cannot agree on an, on some kind of bipartisan commission, to get to the bottom of it, the fact that it's still going on, the fact that a Nash, former national security advisor, convicted felon Michael Flynn, can say when asked about you know a military coup in Myanmar, it should happen here, it should happen here, says when Sidney Powell, uh, president's former attorney, can say the president's going to be um, reinstalled, you know, and the president's telling former president's telling people I'm going to come back in August. Um, that okay, we we've got a problem. This the Senate, the members of the GOP members of the Senate and House who just keep playing along and leading this. Um, I applaud the FBI for now approaching almost 500 uh, arrests. Indictments. Yeah, awesome. Um, we're up to latest time I last time I looked 16 Oath Keepers charges of conspiracy. Yeah, fantastic, great, proud boys, awesome. Until, but I equate this to what Chris Ray said in public testimony on the Hill. The FBI director said what happened on January 6th is domestic terrorism. And I have to tell you, people may scoff at that, but if you just pull out the legal definition of domestic terrorism, tell me anything that 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 is better um, than that, than January 6th in terms of, of matching the legal definition of domestic terrorism. So how do you counter terrorism? Well, we have an example on the international terrorism side. We've been doing it for decades now. Yeah. Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And we've been pretty good at it. Well, you gotta, you've got to dismantle the command and control element of that terror yep. organization. You, you can start taking out people. And boy, we did, right? Drone strikes, right? You can arrest operatives. You keep hitting people with drone strikes, boom, boom, boom. They just keep recruiting. And and do, does, do people see that analogy, right? The... The, the the 19-year-old who gets recruited to violent jihad be, by watching sermons from a violent uh, jihadist right. cleric, right? Watches beheading videos. He's he's ready to go. It, it takes about, you know, as, as little as nine weeks to recruit a 19-year-old to yep. violent jihad. Okay. Can anybody not see that that's happening right now? So if you keep taking down, it's great. We're arrested 400. We're, we count them every day. Oh, we're 460. Okay, great. Until you dismantle the command and control structure of that terror organization, you're going to keep getting recruits recruited by them. 
And so if well, that, because it, it's a radicalization machine. There's a machinery to the radicalization. It's the same damn machinery that uh, that yeah. hit, was used by ISIS and Al Qaeda. The exact yeah. same, right? Yeah. The content's different. Right. It's different right. content, but the machine is the same. It's the same. There's, it's the ad tech, you know, the psychographics. They can they can find you. We put all of our data up and they put you into buckets and then they start drilling down to the individual, the types of uh, of semantics and uh, uh, language and propaganda that can start the process of radicalization based on whatever someone's grievances are, right? Lean into the grievances, get in there and start radicalizing. Now we've had four years of constant radicalization into this alternate reality bubble of, you know, of hero worshiping, this cult like right, thing right, right. where, 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 at the core of it was fringe, but it's not fringe anymore. It's at the core is this constant questioning and reorganizing of, of the very tenets of our democracy and how our constitution works, right? I saw something in it and it's, it's this leading into people's inability to do critical thinking or even have any basic education in civics that somehow that that election that we just had was fraudulent or that 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 Trump is really still the president he always has been because he signed some order some decree this is the latest thing that's going around in that radicalization machine that he signed um, and I can't remember what it was, but he signed something that allowed him to stay in power and the military knows this and the military is really keeping him in power. And they're going to, that's what the August date is all a projection of that coming out of that, that stuff that's all on the surface. Now you don't have to go into the dark recesses of the internet to find this weird stuff. It's, it's, you know, aunt Susie on her Facebook page. <laughs> it's like, it's right there. So, um, that machine, yes, there are leaders that there are people running that machine. I mean, they're pumping these ideas in there and then they're circulating, circulating. It's kind of feeding itself. So I don't know what, I don't know what we do about that, Frank. I don't know what we do. Well, about all right. That so, so look, there's, but there needs to be both a long-term strategy and a short-term strategy because it's great to sit down and, and I can talk for an hour about the holistic whole of society, you know, strategy we need. Ed, you mentioned civics. Absolutely. Uh, we've lost it. Um, yeah people understanding how people are elected in our country and the constitution and three equal branches of government and the court system, they, they don't get it. Um, so that, you know, educators, clergy, big tech will play a huge role. Uh, corporate America, legislators, media, all, all, all of all of them have to combine for That's the long-term strategy of getting people to the truth and getting us back on track. But while we're doing that, right, the train's on fire. The so, train's on yeah, fire. Yeah, you can talk about getting the train back on track, but but it's on fire. So um, th there needs to be a greater sense of urgency at the Department of Justice mm. and the FBI and the White House. And for the first time this this week that we're recording this, I've now seen Biden come out and publicly say, "Yes, we're, today, we're in a, yeah, we're in a battle. We're we're in a battle for democracy, right?" And he yeah. said it, I think, in the context of voting suppression rules that are now passing in something like twenty two states. Yeah. So. Um, yes, we are. Thank God he said it. Start acting like it. Start yeah. acting like you're, you are a wartime president. Now, now I get, I get the dilemma, right? His part of his strength as as uh, Joe Biden is this kind of conciliatory, find the middle, 
great uncle that everybody loves. I, I, I love that. It's great. It's great. And I know he doesn't want to piss off and alienate anybody on the, on, on the Republican side that he has any chance of winning over. I get it. But while you're being that, that nice, friendly uncle, you better call it what it is. That's we're right. We're in a battle for democracy. And you better tell Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Chris Ray, get it in gear, step it up, start going for the people. Speed is a who, factor. Yeah, yeah. Sense yeah, of urgency. Sense of urgency. I think that for me, that's the big thing is it's every and you couple things. I don't think we can stop this. I'm so deep into Mussolini right now and and all the all that whole era and what was happening there. Let me tell you, with these strong men and these strong men regimes, this sort of bent to authoritarianism, this anti-democratic thing. I see you raising your eyebrows. I got to let you go. Um, You can't fight that with civics. Like, oh, we're going to have a new infrastructure plan that that's not going to work. And the you have to fight it. You have to come at it with strength. You really do. You have to you have to come at it. You have to attack it directly. Um, And that happens through language that happens through setting agendas and that happens through indictments. And we need to start seeing some of these indictments. They did it all right in front of us. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how much how much were some of those big characters that were sort of the generals behind that insurrection could have done. They did it on their YouTube channels. They were, they were giving instructions. So I, we do need to start seeing some indictments and some movement. And because of the speed of the radicalization machine now, we need the same speed going in. It just can't be the slow rolling process. It just, something's got to shake and we've got to start doing things a little differently, I guess is my summary. Do you agree with that, Frank? I agree. Has to be done within okay, the legal. Good. Yeah, I agree. It has to be done within the legal system. It, they're they're making amazing progress on indictments, but we we've got to have a com, we have to have a commitment to go after the absolute planners and organizers in positions of power, even if they're sitting in Congress right now, who are continuing to recruit and radicalize. Okay, I love it. I got to let Frank go, everybody. Um, Frank, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this. I think it's. I do think it's important to keep doing these basic building blocks into the discourse. It just helps us all understand what everyone is talking about as this thing does roll so fast down the tracks and is on fire. <laughs> Happy to help. I'm, I enjoyed the conversation as gruesome as it was uh, about, about uh, and, and dour as it might have sounded. Um, anytime I get a chance to help people understand the threats that face us and the people who are countering those threats, it's a good day. So thank you. It's a good day. And you can, you know, hear about this from Frank regularly at, uh, at the Bureau. Thanks, Frank. Thank yep. Take care. Take care. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to Season 1, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and are sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.